Okay, good morning. It's good to see you here. The format for today's discussion, <coughs> excuse me, we have some reading passages, which I think all of you have placed on your chair. And at different spots through the weekend, we'll be stopping to look at the passages together. But I'd also like to give some general introductory remarks to the topic. Before we get started, anyone else who doesn't have? to be talking about karma and how the teaching of karma relates to the practice of meditation. Now, by and large, karma is, has long been the, the poor stepsister of the Buddhist teachings. She does all the work, carries all the heavy burdens, and then has to sleep outside. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about her. <laughs> so... And it's with good reason, because there's a lot of misunderstanding. As I mentioned last night, when the teachings on karma came to the West, they also came with the teachings on karma from other traditions as well. So there's been kind of a mix-up as to exactly what the Buddha was talking about when he was teaching about karma. In particular, it's got mixed up with the idea that karma means determinism, that you know, what you're going to experience now is totally written stone by what you did in the past. It sounds fatalistic, it sounds defeatist, and on the one hand, we, it's hard to reconcile with the rest of the Buddha's teachings. And even if they can be reconciled, there's a question of, well, how does it really relate to us, particularly in our practice of meditation? And even if it does relate to us, do we want it to relate to us? Especially the idea of determinism and defeatism doesn't sound like anything healthy that we'd like to take on. All of this comes, as I said, from a misunderstanding. We think of karma as the baggage that Buddhism brought from Asia. And it's important to understand that there was a mix-up in the baggage at the airport. <laughs> Hindu karma got tacked on to Buddhist karma. Because the Buddha himself, when he was talking about how his teachings differed from those of his contemporaries, focused on the issue of karma, that he explained action in a totally different way from everybody else in his time. There were some that taught a doctrine of total determinism. Again, that what you're going to experience in life has already been determined, either by a god or by a sort of impersonal fate. There were others who taught that human action is totally illusory, that the only real things in life are the things that never change. Of course, action changes, therefore it must be illusory. It doesn't have any real impact on anything. And pleasure and pain are totally unrelated to your own actions. There was another teaching that said that there's actually no principle of causality operating in the universe at all. Everything happens by happenstance or by chance. Therefore, if you want happiness, just grab it when it comes, because it could go at any time. And the Buddha denounced all of these teachings. 
and understand what he himself taught, I thought I'd start first with a teaching that he gave to his own son. There's a principle in journalism that if you want to get a good interview out of somebody, you send a child. The child asks very childish and innocent questions, and the person has to explain things in a lot of detail, many times reveals things that he otherwise wouldn't. And so I think a good entry into the Buddha's teachings is to look at what he taught his son. The story goes that Rahula, his son, was seven years old at the time of this, this uh, discourse. This is passage number one in the readings. And let me give you a little background first. In the very beginning of the passage, the Buddha is coming to visit Rahula late in the afternoon. Rahula sees him coming, so he sets out some water for him to wash his feet. So the Buddha sits down, he washes his feet, and then he takes the water dipper and he leaves a little bit of the water in the dipper. And from the discussion that follows, you get the sense that Rahula probably told a lie that day. You know, Seven-year-old, he's just a brand new novice, he's, he's going to tell some lies. And so the Buddha says, you see how little water there is here in the dipper? And Rahula says, yes. And the, and the Buddha says, that's how little goodness there is in someone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. You can imagine Rahula's reaction. And then he takes the water and he throws it away. And he says, see how that water is thrown away? Rahula says, yes. Okay, that's what happens to the goodness of a person who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. It gets thrown away just like that. And then he turns it over. See, see how upside down this, this dipper is? Yes. Okay, that's how upside down your goodness is when you feel no shame at telling a deliberate lie. Then turns it right side up and says, see how empty this is? You get the point. <laughs> and so having established the fact that being truthful is important, the Buddha goes on to give an analogy. He compares it to an, an elephant who goes into battle and will fight with its forefeet and its hind feet and all of the parts of its body, but it holds its trunk back. And the Buddha says, if an elephant trainer sees this, he realizes that the elephant still hasn't totally given himself up to the battle. It's only when he fights with all the parts of his body and his trunk that he knows, okay, completely devoted to the battle. In the same way, he says, if you see someone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie, there is no evil that that person will not do. This is the sign. If you meet people who feel no shame at telling a deliberate lie, can do anything. You can't trust them at all. So while Rahul is probably really wincing, the Buddha goes on to the next message, which is what we're going to be reading here. Having established the principle that you have to be truthful for this practice to work, and this is a principle the Buddha mentions many other times when he asks for sort of you know, his basic requirements for a student. He says, "Give me someone who is truthful, who's no deceiver. I'll teach that person the Dharma." So that's requisite number one: is that you be truthful. So then the Buddha goes on. <clears throat> he says, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And Rahula says, for reflection, sir. And the Buddha says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are to be done with repeated reflections. Whenever you want to perform a bodily act, you should reflect on it. This bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results. 
then any bodily act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know, you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily act with happy consequences, happy results, then any bodily act of that sort is fit for you to do. And the same principle applies to verbal acts and mental acts. Then he goes on. I won't read the whole passage. You can read it on your own when you go back. But the same principle applies to once you've started an action, look at what's happening as a result while you're acting. Because sometimes the results are immediate. You spit into the wind, it comes right back. Okay. Um, you hit your sister, she's going to hit you back. Um, if you see that even though you thought it wasn't going to cause any problems, but then actually while you're doing it, you see that it is causing affliction to yourself or others, then you stop. If you see no affliction, no harm that's being caused, then you can continue with the action. And then when you perform the action, then if it's a bodily or a verbal action, you should reflect on it afterwards and see if there were any long-term harmful consequences. If there were, you should resolve not to repeat that mistake and also go talk it over with someone else who's on the path. Get their perspective on it. And if you see no harmful consequences, then you should stay, as he says, mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. If it's a mental act, you don't have to go confess it to somebody else, but you just decide that I don't, this, act, this type of thinking is beneath me, I don't need to do that anymore, and you resolve not to repeat it. But if you see again that there was no affliction, then you should be mentally fresh and joyful in your practice. The Buddha goes on to say that everybody in past, present, or future who's purified their actions, you know, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions, have done it through repeated reflection in just this way. So the pattern here is you know, thinking about the consequences of an act before you do them. If you, you will act only on, act, on intentions that are harmless. If on acting what you think is a harmless intention, you see that it's actually causing harm, you stop. If you've done an action thinking that it was perfectly okay, but realize afterwards that it was harmful, then again, you talk it over with someone else and resolve not to repeat it. And if you see no harmful consequences, then you should be happy in your practice. Now, don't you wish that you had this kind of instruction when you were seven years old? I had a I have a friend who's a psychotherapist who's doing mindfulness-based um, cognitive therapy. And she took this and read this to her clients at the end of their course. And they said, you know, if our parents had taught us this, this would have saved us a lot of money. You know, <laughs> down the line. <laughs> down the line. Because look at the values that are being taught here. The first one is compassion. You don't act on harmful intentions. The second one is integrity. You make a mistake, you admit the mistake. You're not too embarrassed to talk it over with other people. Because you know what happens if you get embarrassed to talk it over with other people, after a while you stop admitting it to yourself. You deny that you did the action, you deny that it had any connection with any of the harm that came from it. So you're learning integrity. And finally, you're learning lack of conceit, your ability to step back from an action and look at it simply as a pattern of cause and effect rather than something that I did, and because I did it, it must be right. So those are the first of the psychological implications and, and the values that it's, this teaching is, is teaching you. The second one is the focus is on the action and not on the person. There's nowhere the Buddha says that you make a mistake, you're a bad person. 
Say so you make a mistake, you reflect on it, step back from it, and realize, okay, this was an action. The action is actually beneath me. He's actually teaching you self-esteem, that you're a better person than um, the kind of person who would do that kind of action. So you look at the action simply as a pattern of cause and effect, without reflecting on, without thinking that it has to reflect on whether you are a good or a bad person. Also notice that what the Buddha is saying here, he's not telling Rahula not to make mistakes. He's telling him, okay, you're expected, you will make mistakes at some point. If you make a mistake, this is how you learn from it. And this is very important instructions because our society in particular, I think, is really bad at teaching people how to learn. You go to school and they start channeling you right away from the very beginning. If you're good at music, you suddenly go into the music course. If you're good at math, you go into the math course. What about the kids who are good at math but are not good at music? How are they going to learn how to be good at music? There's not that much instruction. But there's so many things we need to know in life that we're not naturally good at, and it would be useful to know how you go about learning something where you don't immediately have the talent. And this is what the Buddha is teaching him here. It's not that you won't make mistakes. You will make mistakes, but here's how you learn from them, how you benefit from them. Notice also here, there's no statement about innate nature. In other words, saying that you're a bad person because of your actions, but also it's not saying that you're innately good. The teachings you probably heard about Buddha nature, you don't find them from the Buddha. Somebody else taught them. His assumption is what's innate in all of us is the desire for happiness. And he's teaching us, okay, you really desire happiness, this is how you go about it. And the final thing here is that there's no guilt. Again, the Buddha is not saying that you are a bad person because you did this. It's simply saying, okay, if you see yourself making a mistake, you learn from it, you put it behind you. There's another passage where the Buddha says that you reflect on the fact, if you've made a mistake, that remorse and guilt will not undo the mistake. And if you get too tied up in them, it'll make it hard for you to learn from your actions. If you start feeling too guilty, you start going into denial. You admit the action, you admit that it was a mistake, you resolve not to repeat it. That's the healthy attitude to have towards your mistakes. So these are the psychological implications of what he's teaching Rahula. It turns out that there are metaphysical implications as well. These are things we don't usually think about. We've often been heard that the Buddha didn't talk about metaphysical issues if the universe is eternal or not eternal or finite or infinite, whether there is or is not a self, those were issues that the Buddha refused to answer. But because his teaching centers around the issue of how human action can overcome suffering, he's got to go into a lot of detail on what human action is, what its powers are, how it gets involved in the, in the process of causality. And in the way the Buddha is teaching Rahula here, there are metaphysical implications about what human action is and what can be done. The first is that your actions do give results. And they do make a difference between pleasure and pain. It's not that an action is illusory, and it's not that there are no there's no causal relation in the world. He says there is a causal relationship. There's a pattern here. Um, secondly, that your knowledge does have an effect on your action. You can learn from your mistakes and not repeat the action again. 
It's, and it's your ability to learn from your mistakes that makes a difference. So it's your knowledge has an effect on action. Therefore, action, knowledge is worthwhile it's because it's going to make a difference between your experience of pleasure and pain in life. The Buddha is also saying that there is such a thing as free will. Even though there's a causal pattern in life, it's not totally determined. You have your choices. If you didn't have a choice, then telling Rahula to look at his actions and try to learn from them would be useless. If everything were totally predetermined, you know, it all would be written in the stars and you'd just be part of the machine. That's not, and the Buddha says that's not the case. However, even though there is free will, there is enough of a pattern in terms of cause and effect that what you learn from your actions now will be useful in the future. It's not like traffic laws where some laws apply on Mondays and other laws apply on Tuesdays. It's the same law throughout. And you, what you learn from your mistakes, mistakes today will be helpful in the future as well. So those are some of the metaphysical implications of what this, you know, this basic teaching for teaching Rahula to have an intelligent and mature attitude towards his actions actually goes into the whole nature of what it is to act and what the p potential of human action is. And that's the main issue that we're going to be addressing this weekend. Are there any questions on that passage or on the, what, what I said about it? Ready to move on? <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> The last time I gave this weekend, we spent a whole hour on that. But <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so that's the introduction. I'd like to now go to the Buddha's awakening experience to show exactly how he came up upon his teachings on karma. There's no passage here, so I'll just tell you the story. The story goes that the Buddha, after trying all sorts of false starts in his practice, started focusing on the issue of his own actions. He said, particularly the, the power of his thought. He said, there's certain thoughts that have consequences. You think about certain things in a certain way and it's going to lead to suffering. You think about them in another way and it's going to lead to pleasure or total lack of suffering. So he decided to divide all of his thinking into two sorts. Basically, unskillful, skillful, in terms of the results that it gave. And he noticed that skillful thoughts were the ones excuse me, unskillful thoughts were the ones that either had, were motivated by sensual desire or by ill will or by cruelty. And skillful thoughts were the opposite. No sensual desire, actually renunciation of sensual desire, no ill will for anyone, and no desire to be cruel or harmful to anyone. And then he decided to treat his thoughts in two ways. If the thoughts were unskillful, he said it was like a cowherd you saw that it was the cows were going to go into an area where they shouldn't go, you would beat them and check them and pretty much stop them, keep them in line and keep them in bounds. Whereas the skillful ones, you would just allow, allow them to range around. He said it, it's the difference. New York doesn't have any experience with um, rice paddies. <laughs> but in Asia, this is the, one of the big issues, um, is people with cows and people with rice. They're constantly battling, in fact, when the, when the British went to Sri Lanka, they discovered that most of their court cases were somebody's cow got into somebody's rice paddy at the wrong time of the year. And so in the, in the time when rice is growing, you have to be very careful about your cows. Okay. In the same way, your thoughts are getting wound up in 
thoughts of sensual desire or ill will, you've got to be very careful about them. But when the rice has been harvested and the, and the rice paddies are basically fallow, then you can let your cows wander anywhere. They're not going to cause any problems. In the same way, when the Buddha said, when your thoughts are skillful, like a cowherd who during the hot season, when the rice is not growing, he can rest under the shade of a tree, and as long as he knows, okay, the cows are over there someplace, that's fine. That's all you have to worry about. He says, the only problem with if you think about skillful thinking in skillful ways, you think an awful lot and it can tire the mind. So he said, let's bring the mind to concentration. That was the next step. And he brought the mind into the four stages of concentration. Finally got to the fourth jhana. And it was that point that he gained what are called the three knowledges that make up an important part of his awakening. The first knowledge is this. In the first, first watch of the night, he started remembering past lives. In fact, many, many thousands of aeons of time that where he was born, um, interesting, what his name was, what his appearance was, what his food was. Think about this. If you remember your past lives, these are the things you focus on. Your name, your appearance, your food, your experience of pleasure and pain, and then how you died. That's pretty much it. Life. Right there. <laughs> what you eat, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you die. <laughs> but his knowledge didn't stop there, because after all, these were just visions. How can you trust visions? They might be true, they might be false. So the next question was, well, does this particular pattern apply only to me? Does it apply to everybody? That was the next question that went into his mind. And he gained a vision again of the whole universe, of beings dying and then, and then being reborn in line with their actions. In other words, people who had done unskillful things under the power of wrong view tended to be reborn in places of, of, of a lot of misery and hardship. Whereas people who had done skillful things under right view tended to be reborn in areas where it was comfortable, the human realm or the heavenly realm. Actually, the human realm is mixed. Those of us who have a big mixture of both good and bad actions, that's why we're here. But again, this was just a vision. Even though it was very detailed, the question was, is this really true? Well, the question, and then the next question that followed up is, okay, what principle can be extracted from the vision? And this is a basic principle in any meditative tradition. You have visions in your meditation. You don't go, hey, I had a vision. Isn't it great? I know all about my being Cleopatra in a previous lifetime. You say, wait, what's, what's the Dharma lesson that can be drawn from that? Is there any practical um, lesson that can be drawn from the vision? And in this case, the vision was the principle of karma, the principle of action. If you are reborn in line with your actions, that would mean that your actions are you have a choice in your actions based on your views. And what kind of views would give rise to a, a way of acting? Is it possible through a way of acting to get out of this cycle of constant death and rebirth? And so the Buddha decided to look at okay, what is action, and he came to the conclusion that action is intention. And intention is something you can observe in the present moment. You don't have to observe them in visions. You can look at intention in your mind. And the question is, okay, see how your present intention shapes your present experience. And the Buddha discovered that that had a huge impact on your present experience. There may be influences coming in from past actions, but it was your present intentions that really determined how much you were going to suffer or not suffer. Then the next question the Buddha came to the Buddha was, what if happens if there is no present intention? What would happen then? And so he found a way of practice in which all intention dropped away. 
And that was when he found the unconditioned, which was nirvana. And that was what completed his awakening experience. Now, for the Buddha himself, that was his empirical proof of the teaching. You take away your present intention, you re reach the unconditioned. Therefore, intention has a huge role in shaping our, our, our experience. Our experience of past, our experience of the future, and our experience of the present. And so that was what answered the Buddha's initial question that had led him into the wilderness to begin with. Like, is there a path of practice that human beings can follow that leads to the end of suffering, that leads to a, a, a happiness that is totally unconditioned? And by understanding his intentions and unraveling, making his intentions, intentions more skillful to the point where he could totally drop them, that was where he had his point of awakening to the unconditioned. You look at these three knowledges and you look at there are actually three different ways of looking at reality. The first way is, or the first mode you might want to call it, is a narrative mode. He looks at his own personal narrative through many past lifetimes. This is the story of what happened. The second mode is what you might call the, the worldview mode, which you look at what's happening to everybody everywhere, principles that operate across the cosmos. And then the third one is what you might call the emptiness mode, where you simply look at the mind in and of itself in the present moment without taking anything away from what's there, without adding anything to it. Just look at mental events as they're happening. And so the proof of his awakening comes first from the experience of the con unconditioned that comes from dropping intentions. So by looking at things in the emptiness mode, that was what went back and proved for him the truths of what he saw in the narrative and the worldview modes. In other words, human intention really does play a huge role in shaping our experience of pleasure and pain. There's a passage in the text where the Buddha says that there were many, many things he learned in the course of his awakening. They say that after his awakening experience, he meditated for another 49 days. As I said, experiencing the bliss of release. He didn't sit all 49 days. He sat for seven days. That's in and in 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 of itself is quite a bit... Then he got up and walked for a week, and then he sat down for another week, um, and apparently learned an awful lot of things in the course of those 49 days. But after he came out to teach, you probably know that the simile of the handful of leaves. He picked up these some sapa leaves, which are these little tiny, tiny leaves that look about the size of dimes, so you really could pick up a handful of them. One day he was going through the forest, he picked up a handful of leaves, and he asked the monks, okay, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And the monk said, no. It's the hands in the forest. <laughs> and the Buddha said, in the same way, what I taught you, what I've taught you, is like the handful of leaves. What I knew in my experience of awakening was the leaves in the forest. He says, but this is the part you need to know. As for all those other things, they're irrelevant to the question of putting an end to suffering. When he tried to boil the whole thing down to its most simple forms, he came up with a causal principle. I've seen people say, you know, they read the passages where the Buddha is talking about sort of the essential insights of awakening, and they're kind of disappointed. They want to read about the, the lights. They want to read about the visions and the cosmic, you know, the cosmic views and everything. And the Buddha is kind of a disappointer there. He says, causality <laughs> is what he teaches. And the causal principle is in reading passage number four, which is on... Page two. 
And here it is, the whole awakening in four sentences. Okay. okay, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. And from the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. And what you actually have here is two causal principles working at the same time. The first one, when this is, that is, and then when this isn't, that isn't, is a principle that's called synchronicity. Things that arise together, pass away together. You turn on the stereo and immediately there's a sound. You don't have to wait. You turn it off, the sound stops. And if you if you read about quantum physics, you've, you've probably heard that there are atoms at different spots in the universe that you know, arise and pass away at the same time, and they're so far away that the speed of light couldn't, make, couldn't allow them con to communicate. There certain things come together and go away together. This principle happens especially here in the mind. Certain mental states will arise, and pleasure and pain are going to arise immediately as a result. That mental state goes away, the pleasure or pain will also go away. That's one principle. The second principle is from the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. Now that can be at any place in time. It can happen you know, a few seconds later, months later, years later, but you've got one event whose arising will cause the arising of something else and the stopping will eventually cause the stopping of something else. So this is what we think of as sort of normal linear causality through time. And what the Buddha is saying here is you've got both principles operate at once, particularly in the human mind. In terms of linear causality, you, you memorize your, your lessons today, then you can answer the questions on the test next week. Yeah. Or hope you can. <laughs> but at least it's, it's a possibility. But the things that happen today, you're not going to forget many times. Some things you will, but a lot of things you won't forget, and they will continue having an impact on your mind. This is what psychotherapy is all about. All the things you decided to do as a child and didn't know any better comes back and gets you. Yeah. What's interesting about this pattern is that it's, it is a pattern of causality, but there's room for freedom, since this element of synchronicity is also in there in addition to the linear pattern. This gives room for feedback loops. Something happens and there's an immediate reaction in the mind. And then it may take a while for something else and then there's another feedback loop. So it doesn't mean that what, you, what you're experiencing right now is totally impacted by the past. It can also be impacted by the present moment. And this is what allows for the possibility of free, free will. Since not everything is shaped by the past, certain things you do right now and the Buddha explored this possibility, is there free will? And this, the, the conclusion he came to as a result of his awakening is there is free will if you learn how to take advantage of it. Most of us don't. We go through life on automatic pilot. And whatever patterns we picked up, whatever patterns we developed in the past, those are the way we do things. Until we run into a lot of suffering. And even then, we still keep doing them the old ways. And as Einstein once said, this is the definition of insanity. is doing the same thing but expecting different results. But this is the way most of us live our lives. So the fact that you have this input from the present moment shaping things, this is what provides for free will. But there also, because there is that linear pattern, this pattern is what allows us for to learn from, us to learn from things. 
because the pattern is the same over time. There is a sense that you know, if, you, if you do something unskillful, the, the results are going to be painful. If you act on skillful intentions, the results are going to be good. Now, it may take a while, and that's what, that what, comes, that's what comes next, is this, the fact that you've got two patterns of causality going on here is you end up with a lot of parallels with, you've probably heard about chaos theory, which is a pattern of nonlinear causality with lots of feedback loops. And that basically is the pattern of the Buddha's teachings on causality. Chaos theory is about as close as you can get to what the Buddha taught about causality. The parallels here are interesting. As I said, you've got sort of the practical issue of free will and patterns of causality are brought together in this principle of, 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 um, of causality that he taught, which was the result of his awakening. One, you've got complex patterns that come from a simple principle. You've probably seen the Mandelbrot set, that very complex thing that was on everybody's walls about 10, 15 years ago. And if, if, you, if you studied the mathematics of it, it turns out that it was from a very simple mathematical principle that was just reiterated over and over and over again. And depending on where you were on the, sort of the number chart, the numbers would go in different directions. And if you've, you, know, you take the Mandelbrot set and you magnify it a thousand times, you get the same pattern. You magnify that another thousand times, you get the same pattern again. If you try to describe the whole thing, you go crazy. But you know that it comes from a simple principle. It's just that one mathematical principle. Okay, keep that thought in mind. Because this is what the Buddha has to say about, about karma. Or your, your intentions is that it's a very simple principle. You act on skillful intentions, the results are going to be good. Act on unskillful intentions, the results are going to be painful. But the way this works itself out is extremely complex. As he said, if you try to trace everything back to the past as why something happened, you go crazy. Or if you try to trace all the impact of your intentions right now on into the future, you'd go crazy. Because it is so complex. But he says, all you really need to know is the simple pattern that lies at the base of this complex pattern, or the simple principle that lies at the base of the pattern. And you can act on the basis of that, sort of trusting that if you work on skillful intentions, and as we'll discover later, skillful intentions is more than just good intentions. They have to be good, but also you have to have your wits about you as to what's actually going to work and what's not. That's the first parallel with nonlinear causality. The second parallel is something that's called scale invariance, which means that things that happen on a tiny scale are precisely the same things that happen on the large scale. Again, with the Mandelbrot set, you go in you know, a thousand times, a million times, it's the same pattern that keeps coming up. Or if you look at coastlines, if you, take a, if you go down a million times and you see the pattern of water against, against the sands and the rock, then you go magnify it. It's the same pattern as you know, rocks against the sea. It's that same kind of jagged, jagged, um, jagged line. The practical implication here is that what's happening on a small scale can teach you about the large scale events. You want to understand the principles that are operating in your life. All you have to do is look at the present moment, because the same principles are acting there, as are acting on your life as, on, on your life at large. And vice versa. You look at the patterns that operate on the cosmos at large, and you can apply them into your mind in the present moment. So karma on the immediate sort of moment-by-moment -moment 
scale is the same as karma on the large scale. The same patterns hold. This is one of the reasons why meditation focuses on the present moment, because what you need to know for freedom from suffering is all right there. You don't have to go anywhere else. But it's also why it's also instructive to look at the large scale that can suggest solutions to problems in the present moment. Sort of the general patterns of life. You look at those and see how the pattern of life goes. And then you can apply the, apply the lessons there to what's going on in the present moment. We'll be doing more of that later in the weekend. And then finally, there's something in nonlinear causality that are called resonances. Every nonlinear system is made up of many equations interacting. And what happens when you get lots of equations interacting, you, probably, you get to certain points in the system and what you have is one member, the one equation gets divided by zero. Now you know what happens when you divide things by zero? They get undefined. They leave the system. This principle was discovered by someone who was trying to analyze what they call the three-body problem. You've got the moon, and you've got the earth, and you've got the sun. Okay, what are all the gravitational permutations that can happen here? And the fact that you've got three bodies means it's a complex problem. I mean, your mind is a lot more complex than three bodies. Imagine that. But even with the Earth and the Moon and the Sun, there are these points where if the Moon ever got into that point, the Moon would leave its orbit. It would just go out, and you cannot predict what it's going to do. Because it got a point where everything got divided by zero, or some part of it got divided by zero. You see the same principle acting in your computer. You've got all these different, you know, as computer programs get more and more complex, they're more and more likely to have glitches. No matter how well designed the computer program is, there will be spots where all of a sudden, if you've got a Mac, a little bomb appears on your screen. If you're Microsoft, if you're working in Word, they say, it's your fault, it's not ours. <laughs> you've done an illegal action. Now, where, where did they get that? <laughs> David, can you explain that one to me? <laughs> You type, a, type something on your keyboard, it's, it's illegal action. What they're actually telling you is that you divided something by zero and didn't know it. You hit a resonance and the computer just, the system just broke down. Now what this means in terms of psychology or this, the psychology of putting an end to suffering is that by following the rules of the system that you're in, you can reach these points where you get out of the system. And by following these causal patterns, you can get out of, the, out of this system of suffering. This is why you have a path of practice. Because the path of practice is basically saying, this is how you negotiate causality that will get you to these important points in your experience. You hit those points and you've reached the unconditioned. And that particular point right there has been a huge controversy in the Buddhist tradition all along. Some people say, well, if nirvana is unconditioned, how does a path of practice take you there? How can conditioned action get you to the unconditioned? And if you're thinking only in linear terms, the, the question is right. Because you'd have these conditioned actions actually getting in the way of, of the unconditioned. If you're dealing in a nonlinear system that have these resonance points. You follow the system, you follow the pattern of causality, and you hit these points that get you out. And it turns out that in terms of meditation, this point of resonance in your mind is the point where choices are being made, where your intentions are being formed. That's where you want to look. If you understand that point, that's what gets you out. So those are some of the 
sort of the formal principles in the Buddhist principle of causality that he discovered in the night of his awakening. Just a short review, he looked at the principle. First he had the visions of previous lives and the vision of all beings dying and passing away in line with their karma, the karma being the intentions on which they acted. Then the question arose to his mind, well, exactly how much does present intention have to do with my present experience? Does it operate only over time or is it also immediate? And if it's immediate, what happens if you sort of stop intention in the present moment? He found that that was where he found the unconditioned. So he taught this dual principle of causality to explain how there is a pattern to our actions that we can learn from, but at the same time it's not totally predetermined. There is freedom of will. And it's a combination of a pattern you can learn from, freedom of will that allows you a realm of choice. That's what makes it possible for people to learn a path of practice that can go beyond suffering. Are there any questions on that? Yes. Good. As far as skillful intent is concerned, um, it, there's, a, there's a place between your, your desire, your intent, and your action. Mm-hmm. It's a very small amount of time if it's in person. And uh, you said that uh, skillful intent is the desire not to be cruel or harmful to anyone. Mm-hmm. But what happens in a case where one knows that they don't have the desire or the intent to be cruel, but yet Delusion. Not being honest with oneself. oneself. We're getting back to that teaching to Rahula. And this is a lot lot of what meditation is, is learning to be honest with yourself about what's going on in your mind. So meditation is not just a mechanical principle. There's also a moral component that's really honest. Anything else? Yes. Suppose you had a field that's defined by several different equations, and for each point you have to enter the numbers in to say, okay, what's going to happen if something that reaches that point in the field? And if you have at least three equations that define the field, or sometimes only two, there will inevitably be these little points where, as you fill in the numbers, you get one of the one of the elements of the equation gets divided by zero. And they found that in things as simple as I said, three bodies and the, the gravitational interaction just among three bodies, there will be some points where they hit something and you do the math and whoops, it gets divided by zero and it's out. And this is why you have this is why you have the rings of Saturn, because there are certain rings in there where it get you hit a resonance and nothing will stay inside that that part of the ring. You look at them and there's, you've got a ring and then you've got these little gaps and then there's more ring and then there's gaps. Those gaps are the resonances. Yes? Is the goal then to crash our system? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if the system is causing suffering, yeah. <laughs> and the Buddha's reassurance is you crash the system and it's not the end. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yes? I don't know that much about musical, you know, musical theory. 
was that Tyro Brockett and Kepler tried to follow that to its ultimate conclusion, discovered that there were some things that didn't quite work. But the, the term was, I mean, the term was made up by a Frenchman, Poincaré, and it must have had some relevance to, to music. Yes? But why Prancourt called it a resonance? This this other resonance, I really don't know. Yes. That's probably what Prank Ray brought it from. Because he saw, you know, the moon goes out of orbit, that's a wolf tone. I mean, it's, it's bad news. And it, it could come crashing into the United States. Yes. <laughs> That's what the whole weekend is about. <laughs> but it's, you've got the issue, okay, if your intention is one of the things that keeps your present experience together, um, if the intention is unskillful, it can make your present experience very, very painful. If the intention is skillful, you can actually take what would normally be an, un, you know, an unpleasant situation and actually not suffer from it. But then the question comes, what does it mean not to have an intention in the present moment? You just can't say, stop intending, because that in and of itself is an intention. It's more that in the process of meditating, as you get the mind to greater and greater equilibrium, you get to a point that you realize if you moved in any direction at all and intended in any direction at all, there would be suffering or stress. At that point, it's not gross suffering, but it's a very subtle kind of stress. And the question just pops in the mind, okay, what do I do now? And the and the possibility opens itself that you don't have to do anything. And that's the point we're actually trying to get to in the meditation. It's divided by zero. It's not just plain zero. It's, it's more special. <laughs> yes. Right. Because, as we'll be looking at later, the Buddha says several things happen in the mind around intention. You've got, first there's contact between different events in the mind. You've got perceptions, you've got feelings, you've got what he calls attention, which is the way you look at things, sort of the way, the, the way you frame the issue, the questions you ask about that. And these things will shape your intention, and then your intention will shape them. And so while you're, and if you think about what you're doing as you're meditating, like this morning when we work with the breath, first you pose the question, okay, is it possible to breathe comfortably? 
and you relate to just that makes you relate to your breath in a new way. And then you can have an intention. How about a little bit here? How about a little bit there? You try it out. See what feelings result, and then you're going to fine-tune your intentions and your attention based on the feelings that arise. So this is how we learn about these processes. It's giving away the punchline of the weekend. This is how karma is related to your meditation. <laughs> yes. yes. Not really. I mean, your first issue is to focus on the breath and the feeling together to see how they relate. And you come to a point where it seems like they're all one. And that's a desirable point in the meditation. Then you stay with that sense of oneness long enough and then they kind of separate out on their own. But they're all right here in the present moment. Anything else? Yes. question here is not so much, okay, what was the quality of your intention? And not only I one, it was good, but also two, how experienced was it? And secondly, have you, you know, really been honest about your experience? Those are the three things that come in. Now, we all start out inexperienced, and so this is why the Buddha gave those instructions to Rahula. You make a mistake, you learn from it. Also, you begin to realize sometimes there are things going on that you really cannot know. So especially in the helping profession, a lot of things about that person that you don't know. And that you have to chalk up to karma, past karma. It's okay, there's no, there's no unskillful karma going on in your intention, but the results may not have been what you wanted, in which case you say, okay, I'll learn from that. And what you learn is there are some, some things where you just need to get more experienced and you get more sensitive. And then there are areas where you say, just this is totally beyond human capacity to know. I can't be held responsible. And you've got to learn how to make, see the distinction between where you can help be held responsible and where you can't. And you can only learn that through trial and error. Yes. Linear is, say, you've got a timeline that goes from here to here, and then this causes this, and this causes that, and this causes that, and just goes down the line. Nonlinear is when you've got things looping back. Some things actually occur right immediately in the present moment. Linear means not only over time, but it also means that once you A causes B, B never comes back to, to affect A. B just moves on to C, C moves on to D. 
that's what they mean by linear. It goes in a line of one, one, one factor to the next. Okay, that you're thinking in nonlinear terms. Yes. If you think of it as all of a network where everything is influencing everything else, that's a nonlinear. Even though it may happen over time, it's a nonlinear concept. Yeah. This is just the formal term that they use for that. Yeah. Yes. not unconditioned. What you're doing, I mean, there are these kind of mini resonances in the mind. Like you get into a little thought world and say that you're, you're really miserable in that thought world and you can stop and think. Say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? That in and itself is a thought, but that thought pulls you out of the world. And that's not an awakening, it's not an unconditioned, but it's the process that happens in the mind. You can use your thoughts to get yourself out of a thought world. Yeah. No, they don't cause the unconditioned, but they sort of open the door there. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that there are various levels of thought worlds in the mind that you're getting out of in the course of the, the course of the meditation. And what the Buddha was saying, when you really hit where there's absolutely no intention at all, that's something really special. And it makes you know, total change in your life. Yes. There's a difference between good and skillful. And that's what the meditation teaches. You can come in with lots of good intentions, but you're, you're, there's a lot of delusion there as well, and you've got to work over the delusion. Mm 
and the delusion is about your intentions. As you get more and more knowledgeable about that, there, and this is one of the reasons why they have stages in awakening. You know, the stream entering who hits the unconditioned for the first time and realizes, okay, I did this through my actions, but there was sort of no me there when I experienced it. There was the experience, but there was no sort of sense of a me experiencing it. There's just the pure experience of the unconditioned. Okay, you return to your normal life after that. It's change your perspective. You stay, still may have some unskillful intentions, but you're not going to act on them. And it's only the, the, the arahant, the totally awakened person, who is totally devoid of any unskillful intentions. And those people don't don't suffer. They use their sense of self when they need it, and they can put it down when they don't need it. <laughs> That's something we'll get into later in the weekend. Okay. Yes. I think it's more the issue that it frames the issue in the wrong way. When we talk about attention, how you frame the issue. The question is, why do you need to think about an innate nature in people? And if you had an innate nature, then the problem would be, okay, is your innate nature you know, natively good, natively bad? Um, if it was natively good, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, the unskillful things that you do in your life. Why? Why do you do these? And they say, well, you originally, originally you were awakened, but then you forgot. Well, if you forgot once, what's to prevent you from forgetting again? And so it just sets up the problem in such a way that you really can't practice. So you think about the implications of this, you get to a point where you can't practice. But if you think, okay, I, I, you know, the assumption is I do want to put an end to suffering. You can work with that assumption and framing the issue in that way, and you find that you actually get to the end of suffering. So in that sense, you know, Buddha nature is an unskillful teaching. Yes? Not necessarily. One of my one of my favorite teachings there's a there's a monk in Thailand who's a, who is widely believed to be an arahant and he says that that luminous mind that's ignorance. <laughs> the luminous mind is ignorance. Yeah. Your ignorance is defiled. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
I just think that the Buddha was very skillful in how he used you know, and avoided certain issues. Yes? Um, my understanding, I might be wrong, but the fourth type of karma, karma mm-hmm. involves seeing clearly with discernment the complexity of this, that conditionality, mm-hmm. which could entail a radical kind of phenomenology where you're sitting so much in your experience, and yet you and Gotama, I mean, Gotama created 10,000 pages of teachings in the mm-hmm. Pali Canon, mm-hmm. and you spend a great deal of your life teaching. So clearly, there's some comma to be accrued by spreading the word. Mm-hmm. Is that true, or is it just good comma? Well, it's they, they say that arahants, and I'll be up front that I'm not an arahant, um, <laughs> have found out a way to have intentions, but without the karmic results. So because he's got the, he's already been removed when he teaches. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. No, they're just habits. The three poisons are an inherent part of us, and no, they're their habits. And this is what this is what's so radical about the teaching on karma. It, it, it has you look at everything in terms of actions, and not in terms of inherent essences. You're inferring total potentiality. I mean, you you can be potentially very very skillful and potentially very unskillful. What's assumed in everybody is this desire for happiness. That too is a type of action. And then the question is, are you going to act skillfully or unskillfully on that, on that desire? Mm-hmm. Yes? Um, when there is no intention, mm-hmm. is there being? doesn't matter. Because there's no experience of the conditioned realm. What's left is the conditioned. And when, once my teacher said, uh, John Suwat, who's one of my teachers, said that <clears throat> once there's the ultimate happiness, you don't care if there's a being or not a being. It's just not a question that, ha- that occurs to you. <laughs> yes? When you get in states of concentration, everything turns into a oneness. And the more subtle and deeper the concentration, the stronger the sense of just one. Until you hit what's called the, the infinitude of consciousness. And at that point, you have to let go of the oneness and see what remains after that. That's, that's nothingness. But in terms of analyzing these, the, you know, say the, the four frames of reference or the four foundations of mindfulness, what you're doing as his mind gets more and more concentrated is they do become more and more, there's a sense that there's this total oneness about them. And then when you get really, really clear, you begin to see, okay, you know, body is one thing, feeling really is something else, it's really separate. And it's separating them out. They don't separate out along the same lines that you would have imagined. And John Lee has a great analogy. He says it's like taking a, 
a rock that you know has gold ore and silver ore and lead ore in there. Now you have the choice. You can go take a toothpick and try to get the gold ore out and the silver ore and the lead ore. doesn't work. What you do is you take the whole rock and you throw it in the fire. And when it reaches a certain temperature, okay, there goes the silver. Another temperature, there goes the gold. Another temperature, there goes the lead. And it's because when you put things together like this, then you begin to see where they naturally on their own divide up. It's actually coming from your experience as to what what will make will lead to true happiness. So the psychology, the way the original teachings were, they assumes okay, you want you want true happiness. Okay, just the fact okay, you start out with a desire for happiness. After all, you begin to realize that some forms of happiness are longer lasting and truer than others. That the Buddha said is the beginning of wisdom. But and then you decide, okay, I would rather have long term happiness rather than short term. Then acting on that, you have to look at your actions. Okay, what kinds of actions lead to long-term happiness and which ones lead to only short-term? Right. Well, again, from the, in, the, in the Theravada sort of way of putting it all together, they don't, they don't have to bring in the Buddha nature. They bring in the realization that if you want happiness, you realize other beings also want happiness. And if your happiness depends on their pain, they're going to fight your happiness. They're going to try to destroy it. So basically for your own, you know, for your own true happiness, you have to start taking other people's happiness, other people's happiness into consideration as well. And look at forms of happiness that are not harmful to them and that are actually helpful for everybody. Because <laughs> it's so much easier to go for the for the candy. Whatever seems to you know, present yourself right up, present itself as okay. This is the easy way out. This is a form of happiness. Right, you can grab it right now. Even though it clearly is not. Yeah, even when it clearly is not, and there's a problem of a failure of the imagination, the failure of your ability to think yourself further down the line. That doesn't mean that you know, just because evil things come easy doesn't mean that we're nat naturally evil. It's just that evil things are easier to do.
total absence of suffering. <laughs> I mean, the Buddha gives examples. I mean, you can make a list of what would make you happy. But for him, ultimately, okay, there's, there's no limitation. Um, it's something that is never going to be disturbed, i.e. no limitation in time, no limitation in space. A sense of well-being that meets those. When the Buddha talks about nirvana, he doesn't define it in very, you know, very precise terminology. He defines it in terms of analogies. But all the analogies lead to an interpretation of total freedom, um, total lack of disturbance. Basically, outside of space and time. Yes. In the meditation, as you expect us today, um, you led us, I think, through what are comparable to the first four of those 16 elements uh, in breath meditation. <laughs> It's, it's a sense of fullness and refreshment. Because what happens in, for those of you who aren't aware of the 16 steps, the first one is to, first two are to breathe in and out, knowing that whether the breath is short or long. The third one is to breathe in and out, being aware of the whole body. Okay, once you're aware of the whole body, then you notice that what they, they call the bodily fabrication, and that's the process of breathing. It's the willed process of breathing. And the way and the way you will your breathing, if you sit down and normally we breathe without thinking about it, and the body does just perfectly fine or, or pretty well. But if we start thinking, oh, now I've got to breathe in, all of a sudden our cartoon ideas of what the body has to do when it breathes in kick into place. And we find ourselves pulling the breath in and pushing it out, and thinking something has to come in and out right here, and we create these sensations to go along with the breathing to sort of make it clear to ourselves, oh yeah, this is an in-breath. I know this is an in-breath. It has all the characteristics of in-ness. You know? And this is an out-breath. And we mess things up that way. And so you begin to realize a lot of this stuff is unnecessary. So the fourth step is to calm all of that extra stuff and allow the body just to, to be there as you breathe in, be there as you breathe out, without dragging sensations through the body. And so you've got all these parts of the body that are no longer having these sensations dragged through them and they're allowed to sort of have their own fullness. They feel just right as they are. And then you allow more and more of the body to have that feeling of just right as it is. That's rapture. Yes? Well, the Buddha t divides it into, as you said, four tetrads, and each tetrad can take you through through awakening. But what happens in practice is that you always end up in that last tetrad. So you could stay at one thing on and continually refine that one right. tetrad. Right, right, right. You know, you, 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 what happens is that it tends to move you through the others. 
You're aware of the whole body breathing in. You calm the body. Look, provocations. Okay, well, there. Rapture, pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Everything's there. You know. So it's more of an unfolding. It's an unfolding. Yeah, yeah. Everybody all. Yes. That's where past karma comes in, and you 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 look at, as a teacher, you would look at an individual like that and say, okay, where can we get this person, and where can you get to that person so they begin to gain a sense of their intentionality? And it really varies from person to person to person where you're going to find that element. One of my mentioned last night, I had a student who's had a son who was autistic and hyperactive at the same time, and was just barely communicating. But at least I was able to get him to be conscious of the fact that when, when he was angry and that he didn't have to follow through on the anger, and that he could stop and just kind of breathe through it. And you can start, you, you, get, you find where you can, wherever you can get a beach, beachhead, start there. Because everybody is acting on an intention one way or another, no matter how you know, limited their, their general understanding is. If they're not, if they're not in, touch, in touch with that, you have to wait till the next lifetime. <laughs> it's a question in the back. Well, the question was about people who are so you know have, it's so psychotic or you know have such psychological problems that they can't really work with their intentions. What you do with them? I don't know if I gave a satisfactory answer, but I, yes.
guess the question is, you know, is this, uh, you know, you personally look at this metaphor, the notion of past life, metaphorically or literally? You know, Both. Okay. Mm-hmm. But isn't, you know, is, you know, to what extent, I mean, everything, to some extent, is this deprived of imagination? These things that we experience, we still feel your imagination about, not the mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's several several questions well, right yeah, there. I'm okay. out. Yeah. This is a very big subject for right. Okay. And every kind of question gets asked, there's another issue or seven or seven <laughs> <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> it's a non-linear. It's a non-linear issue. Um, well, the whole the whole question of you know, well, even you get down to this issue of you know determinism versus free will. The Buddha can't come out and say, here it is, I've got empirical proof for you. If he could have done that, he would have. What he's saying here is that if you make these assumptions, it makes it a lot easier to do the path that's going to lead to the end of suffering. And if you've asked a scientist, can scientists prove that there's determinism? They can't. It sort of lies outside the realm of experiment. Can they prove that there's free will? Can they prove that everything is just totally chaotic? I mean, have, have the physical laws changed you know, occasionally through the course of the universe? And the scientists themselves have to say, we have to make certain assumptions for the science to work. Okay, monks aren't allowed to talk about their experiences. <laughs> monks are not allowed to talk about their experiences in meditation. In general, though, okay, you, hit, you hit the unconditioned. The process that you go through to get there, you, get, you, become, you see that this could not have happened, this conditional process that you've created that's stood in the way of the unconditioned. You couldn't have done it in just one lifetime. Secondly, the experience of the unconditioned, there is no sense of any of the khandas, any of the aggregates that you normally take of as yourself. And since there is this experience, it doesn't depend on these, this self. There's no real clear line between this self and a previous self that could have caused this as well. So the experience of getting into the unconditioned, getting to that point of resonance, you begin to see the process of karma. And part of what you see is this, it, this could not have happened in just one life. The unconditioned is not subjective. It's, it's a bizarre thing. It's, it's there. And there's no you know, subject or object to be subjective. But the problem is that each person has to experience it for him or herself. It's part of the nature of the action that gets you there. It's inherent in the path. Let's put it that way. So for the purpose of... You, know, you make it a lot easier for yourself on the path if you say, okay, let's keep an open mind on this topic. And that's all the Buddha is asking you for, because he's not saying, "Okay, everybody, raise your hand. Who believes in rebirth?" You know, and those who don't raise your hand can leave. He doesn't say that. (laughs) He's basically saying, "This is this is a good working hypothesis. Explore it and keep an open mind about it." Yes.
Okay, you can hit the unconditioned without becoming an arahant. And you have your first taste of what's called the deathless at stream entry. And that's what confirms for you, okay, this path really does work. The Buddha really does know what he was talking about. That there is an unconditioned, that there is the path of practice, and this was the path of practice that got me there. But you still are not totally free of your defilements. But you've seen enough of the unconditioned to know that it's there. And then the remainder of your practice is basically working through the rest of the the rest of the issues in the mind. So it no longer becomes just, you know, hitting the unconditioned, but you're kind of there all the time. That is full awakening, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's individual. It it's individual. So, in way, it's individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, everyone has to be until they can't be no longer. Mm -hmm. always that, I mean, that's the nature of things that push towards. It's it's taking that desire for happiness and making it really skillful. That's innate in the universe in a way. It's something that pushes. Mm -hmm. Well, the desire for happiness keeps pushing you. It's assumed. Because it's just the way it is. <laughs> Again, it's, the Buddha doesn't propose to answer every issue. He says, these are the things you need to know in order to gain awakening. And so if you look at yourself. Do you have that desire? Okay, I've got that desire. How do you make it skillful? It's almost like someone posed a riddle. The Buddha himself says you cannot even conceive the beginning of the universe. If you try to trace things back in that direction, you don't get anywhere. He says, this is what the scale and variance is all about. Just understand what you're doing right now, and that'll get, that'll open up the unconditioned. Yes? A tricky thing about analyzing the attentions is that we are down to a certain extent by assumptions, moral assumptions, that are part of our culture, our society. If you're a conquistador landing in Mexico in you know, 1540 and you see an Aztec priest coming at somebody's heart, you're going to be looking at that intention and saying, oh, how barbaric, how mm -hmm. terrible. You ask the Aztec priest and in total sincerity will be saying, well, you know, we can't think about ourselves individually. We have to give this gift to the gods. Mm -hmm. And he would be totally unfettered by it. And, of any hindrance of that he's doing evil. Uh, and then on a small scale, uh, I don't know all the particulars of Jeffrey Dahmer, but if you ask him, why did you chop up your next door neighbors and you eat him for dinner, he would probably say in sincerity and innocence, uh, well, I was hungry. And Examples of really <laughs> deluded people. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is that they're going to suffer as a result of their actions. So even on the mass scale, on, on the scale of the Aztec civilization, it's one complete suffering in a sense. Mm -hmm. The hard part is to break out of that system and say, right. your entire society, your entire civilization is, uh, is, uh, is barco. Well, the, the Dharma is, t is kind of countercultural wherever you go. <laughs> 
I can think of a lot of people in America. I think of these people up here in New York inside, really wacko. Yeah. And, but you think about the Buddha, it was the same sort of thing. They, they were doing you know, animal sacrifice. There were cases of human sacrifice that are still going on in India. You know? And this was the norm. And it takes a few people to say, wait a minute, this just makes no sense, period. So just because you know, your whole culture is doing this doesn't mean that you, know, you have to do it, though. This is the other part of the teaching, is that we're not totally socially conditioned. But to realize that, you're, that that society is Marco, you have to somehow be able to break out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that one lone ascetic priest, that as he's about to take out of city at night, he says, you know, what the hell am I doing? I'm, I'm pretty sure there must have been some ascetic priests who thought, thought that. You know. <laughs> And then the question is, were they able to carry through, you know, on that insight? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the phrase entering the stream, the semantics of the stream is that it, there's kind of an in- inevitability that once you hit the stream, you flow out to the ocean. In this case, you've had that experience of the deathless, and it's guaranteed that you will have a full experience. Wow. And as the Buddha says in some of the places, you know, the, at, at a maximum seven lifetimes. And he talks about how once you've hit that stream where it's, it becomes inevitable, you aren't going to gain full awakening. The amount of suffering that's left to you is infinitesimal compared to the amount of suffering left for, for beings who have not hit the stream. Shall we break for lunch? It's 12.25. How long does it take you to eat and come back? An hour and a half? Okay. An hour. I know. I, the, the New Yorkers I talked to said an hour and a half. So, they, uh, <laughs> so, so you can come back and meditate. Come back and meditate early if you want. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.